This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Nobody pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello everyone, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Apologetics radio, sta- uh, radio show that gives you the reasons why you should be able to defend your faith in a public forum. Today with me we have author Kirk Hastings and we'll be continuing with a review of his book, What is Truth? I wanted to remind our listening audience that uh, you may call us with questions at 609-398-1020. And your questions will be taken live on WIVG 1020 Life Radio. Uh, This show is supported in part by Grace Community Church in Waterford Works, New Jersey. Today we have uh, author Kirk Hastings, and he tells me that he has four books that are signed by himself, autographed, that we are going to give one book each week for the next four weeks to a caller with a worthy question. How are you, Kirk? Good. Good to I have just, you back. I just read in the newspaper the other day, uh, one of John Lennon's original signatures on a book or something was sold for like a million dollars or something. Wow. Well, you can get my signature a lot cheaper than that. <laughs> <laughs> and if a, uh, a listener on our show, Kirk, was interested in getting this book, which I would highly recommend, by the way, how would they go about doing that? Uh, the easiest way is probably uh, Amazon.com on the Internet. You can get it there. Or you can go directly to uh, the publisher. It's called Publish America. It's one word. You can go to publishamerica.com and just put my name in there and my book will come up and you can order it directly from the publisher too. Alternatively, they can go to their local Christian bookstore and have it special ordered as yes, well. Yes, yes. It's available. Any bookstore, you know, it's it's available through the, the same distributors that distribute most other Christian books. So any Christian bookstore could order a copy for you. Great. Well, Kirk, before we get into the discussion, I just wanted to bring up what I thought was one newsworthy item that uh, uh, reflects directly on my uh, calling in life, and that is as an internist, as a physician, as one who cares for people, uh, even in the uh, terminal phases of an illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a U.K. study that was uh, just published um, by a, um, a doctor in London, Dr. Clive Seal, who is a professor at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and he conducted a random survey by mail of more than 3,700 British physicians, um, and almost uh, 3,000 of them responded. There were over 2,900 responses uh, to his questionnaire, and it had to do with end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. So if somebody was in in a terminal state of illness and they were uh, pretty much on their deathbed, the question asked them, you know, whether or not they were atheist or agnostic or whether they were religious uh, with their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that the atheist and or agnostic physicians were twice as likely to hasten the death of somebody who was on their deathbed, typically by using uh, morphine and other sedatives and hypnotics to uh, uh, suppress respiration uh, and so forth. Uh, I found this uh, pretty intriguing because uh, one of the things that uh, I learned in medical school was 
first do no harm. Yeah. But certainly Isn't that part of the Hippocratic Oath or something? It is. And, and the other thing, of course, is a lot of attention has been given uh, lately to end-of-life care and alleviation of pain. Mm-hmm. But alleviating pain and suppressing respiration uh, aren't necessarily the same thing. Right. You know, by, by overloading uh, patients with sedatives, hypnotics, and morphine uh, and suppressing respiration, you're actually hastening their demise. Uh, sure. One of the things that I try not to do. In fact, um, I just had an experience this past weekend where I went to the house twice of one of my patients who was on her deathbed and was able to pray with the family not once but twice on two separate uh, evenings wow. um, in advance of her her passing so little little contrast. I'm sure they appreciated that coming from their doctor little contrast in in the way uh, I approach uh, end of life um, compared to what uh, uh, was recorded in Great Britain on this study yeah but anyway uh, thought that was uh, an interesting newsworthy item as it uh, compares and contrasts uh, the uh, religious backgrounds of, uh, of doctors and the way they approach uh, uh, terminal care but anyway, getting back to your book, Kirk, uh, What is Truth? And, of course, this is a, um, um, a title that's based on Pilate's own commentary at uh, uh, Jesus' trial. Mm-hmm. And I know that it was your own little um, journey, if you will, of your own thoughts and um, search of what the truth was. Sure. Why don't you give a, l- uh, a little background on that before we get into uh, the book itself? Well, basically, I grew up without any kind of religious education because uh, my father was pretty much an atheist. Uh, Fortunately, later in life, I think that changed. But when I was growing up, he wasn't of the mind of wanting to send any of his children to church or anything like that. So I grew up without really any religious education at all. So really didn't know much about it. But I got into my middle 20s and started being faced with some questions in life about some things and i started to wonder you know is there anything to this or you know how do you tell one religion from another or is is any religion better than any other are they all the same or you know are they all a crock or i just decided it was time that i needed to answer some of those questions for my own personal well-being and if i came out deciding that none of them were worth bothering with then fine i would do that but i wanted to know you know i wanted to take a reasoned approach to it and apply the same intellectual uh parameters to this area of life that you would to any other part of life you know does this make sense doesn't it make sense is it something i should believe in or just dismiss or whatever and started a search and kept coming back to the Bible as uh, as a historical record and finally ended up becoming a Christian. When I studied the different religions of the world, I found that the Bible had far more going for it historically, um, philosophically, religiously, almost any way you want to put it. And that's where I ended up going with it. Well, I'm sure that we have many people listening um, to the uh, uh, broadcast that have the same questions that you once had. Sure. And the thing that I find fascinating about your book is how uh, elegantly and, and, and simply it's written. It's very logical. It's cohesive. Uh, your bibliography is outstanding. Every comment that you make that might sound like a bold statement, uh, you have annotated in your bibliography, and mm-hmm. the reference source is readily available. 
Uh, sure. So I found that uh, especially um, attractive just from a scientific inquiry point of view. I read a lot of books along the way by people that were basically the same in the same position I was. They were honest skeptics who started out with the same questions and wanted to know what the answers to those questions were. And uh, many of them, one that pops to my mind right away is Josh McDowell. I read his Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which mm-hmm. is an excellent resource on the historical evidences and foundation for the Christian faith and for the Bible. And he started out as an atheist, and his desire originally was to disprove Christianity and disprove the Bible as anything that we should be bothered with. But when he did the research, he ended up coming out the other direction. He came to the point where he said to himself, this stuff is true. The evidence backs this up. Yeah, and today, today's show, we're going to be dealing with the scientific evidence that supports a creator God, an intelligence behind the mm-hmm. universe. Um, this and that was one of my biggest questions. Uh-huh. Does science back this idea of a God up, or does it, is it against it? I wanted to know that. Right. In the two previous shows that you've been uh, a co-host uh, uh, addressing the, uh, the book itself, uh, we've talked about these things. We've mm-hmm. talked about uh, the fossil records specifically and the science behind that mm-hmm. and the things that would uh, support uh, evolution or not support evolution uh, in, that re- you know, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, today we're going to be talking about 16 other problems that evolutionists have a hard time explaining away. There are a number of problems, which up front I didn't realize because they're not talked about much in the mass media. But when you really do some objective research into this, you find there are quite a few problems with it that aren't generally discussed. Right. And, and of course, the mass media, whether it's uh, nature or National Geographic shows or whatever it is that you're looking at. Wild Kingdom when yeah, I was growing up. They will allude to evolution as a foregone conclusion, as a fact that's been established by science. Yes. When, in fact, people don't realize that it's still considered a theory. And as science evolves, if I can use that term, as our scientific knowledge evolves and our ability to get into the genetics of the human cells... Mm-hmm. or any animal cell for that matter, it becomes more and more untenable in its position uh, You know, for, for life to have been created from a prebiotic soup or a primordial soup and then become a self-replicating creature, uh, be it a single-celled organism or a complex uh, vertebrate, uh, mm-hmm. which is what human beings are. Well, really, most people don't, if all you do is listen to what the mass media tells you about these things, like you said, you would come to the foregone conclusion, well, evolution is true, and there's no reason to question this. It's been proven over and over again by science. But the real fact of the matter is, and one of the main reasons I wrote my book, is the fact that there is more and more scientific evidence accumulating on the side of creation than there is on the side of Darwinian evolution. But you would never know that from our mass media because they don't tell you a lot of that. You are correct. And I did want to remind our listening audience that uh, you can call us at uh, 609-398-1020. You can also email us at our website. The website is evidence for, that's the number for, evidenceforfaith.com. And also as a reminder, we have all of the previously done um, shows in podcast format which can be downloaded. We're over 90 at this point in time. Uh, That's a great resource. In fact, uh, we're coming up to our our, um, third anniversary. This will be the beginning of our third year uh, starting in Are you uh, coming up to your 100th program soon? Uh, Soon. 
very soon. You should have a party for that. Uh, we should. <laughs> You're right. And also, you can download previous podcasts on iTunes. So if you just uh, go into iTunes, you can listen to a number of uh, shows, including the two previous shows with author Kirk Hastings. So today we're going to look at what is truth, and we're going to look at 16 additional problems with Darwinian evolution. And I'm going to start it out by uh, giving folks a quote from Marcel Paul Schutzenberger, a scientist, and he says this, There is a considerable gap in the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, and we believe this gap to be of such a nature that it cannot be bridged within the current conception of biology. Wow, that's a yeah. big statement, Kirk. you want to translate that for our listeners? Well, I should also mention here that this particular individual is not, at least the source that I got this quote from when he said it, he was not a Christian at the time. He was basically an evolutionist, but he was honest enough to admit that there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge of this, and it's by no means... Uh, you know, cut and dry, that this stuff is true. There's not too many evolutionists. There are some, though, that are willing to admit that, but a lot of them are very uncomfortable with admitting that. Well, Charles Darwin himself, in a number of writings after he wrote the book, suggested some of the faults and problems that he had uh, with his book, and even the last third of his book dealt with problems yeah. that, he, that he had foreseen could be problematic with respect to his theory. There's even some quotes in my book from... Uh, Mr. Darwin that were in his book Origin of Species where he admitted you know we're not sure about this we don't know that um, you know I know that my suppositions here fall beyond the bounds of ordinary science he was honest enough to admit some of those things right. but a lot of his followers are not okay my uh, my understanding is that we do have a caller on the line uh, hello caller state Hi, your name caller. how are you I'm well and you good what's your question well, more of an observation. I'm wondering if, if to prove uh, creationism, do you need only debunk the uh, evolutionary theory, or do you have to come up with some scientific evidence that, that supports creationism? Well, today's show, we're actually going to go into a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, that, and we're going to use scientific evidence today. There's a lot of scientific evidence that suggests that evolution has multiple, multiple holes in its supposition that uh, things were created in a prebiotic soup, starting with uh, simple chemicals and then yeah, going right. into... I'm hip to all that. What I want to yep. know is, just by disproving evolution, do you prove creationism, or and are those the only two alternatives? Are you setting up a straw man argument, or do you have okay. scientific um, okay. basis I, I for understand. believing in creationism? And if you do, where, where does the word faith come in? Okay. There are two basic options. We were either created by a supreme intelligence, call it God, whatever you want to call it, a higher power, supreme being, it doesn't matter to me what you name it, or we evolved by chance random mutations over billions and billions of years. And you okay. know that those are the only two options. Well, there's one other option. We actually discussed, I believe it was on last week's show, we uh, gave a quote from a scientist that was quoted in Scientific American magazine who stated that, uh, when it, I'll read the quote to you. It says, when it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Right. So that's well, that really what you have to start with, is either one of those two, two options. Well, I don't think so at all. I think, uh, I think the universe is a wide, wonderful place, and there's all sorts of uh, room for a lot of different ideas. And to limit but them to the two... Can you I give a third alternative to that? And the second point is, 
just by disproving one, I don't believe that actually proves the other. And to use uh, scientific evidence in a matter of faith, I think, is a contradiction. Well, we're not we're not using faith today. We're using strictly scientific evidences. And if you want to listen to the uh, the evidences that we're going to talk about, the the sixteen additional problems with creation. I'm sorry, with evolution. Then you'll come to the honest understanding that there's no other op- option. Uh, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA in 1954, came up with a pretty bizarre hypothesis as a third alternative, and he was laughed out of the scientific community. His theory was panspermia, that um, Martians or some other uh, life form came from outer space and totally populated the uh, the Earth with the various species that we see today. That's the theory called panspermia, and nobody ever uh, held to that in the scientific community. But anyway, let's let's get on with the uh, the sixteen uh, problems, and why don't we start with the the prebiotic soup, Kirk? Well, that's that's a famous one. I think that everyone is kind of conscious of to one or extent or another, but most people don't know the details behind that. What they usually hear is that a couple of scientists uh, a while back did a little experiment in a laboratory, and they basically recreated the primordial Earth, the chemicals and everything that they believed existed at that time introduced a little electricity and some other things into it and created uh, some minerals that were on their way on their way to becoming possibly living cells and they said okay here we are we figured out how life came about yeah what you're alluding to Kirk is the uh, famous Miller-Urey experiment from 1953 and of course those are the two scientists right. that did this experiment. Right. Stanley Miller was a graduate student, and Yuri was uh, the professor at the University of Chicago in 1953, and they put together this elaborate experiment with with methane gas and ammonia and so forth, and they put electrical charges through the glass tubes. Simulating lightning and other things in the early Earth. Right. Now, the critique of that experiment by scientists later showed some bis. Pretty pretty basic flaws in what their theory uh, was all about. And a what number the chemicals of flaws. Yep. Uh, well, share a couple with us. Well, first, um, they ended up coming up with uh, some amino acids that they said were the building blocks of life. Okay. Usually, the story is repeated that they came up with artificial life, but that isn't the case. They came up with some amino acids that they say are the building blocks of life. Well, we know That's better two than different that. things. Right. Well, amino acids are actually the building blocks of protein, not of life. Right. Okay. The building blocks of life we now know is genetic material, and that's DNA. Right. Which allows organisms to replicate. Right. So anyway, coming up with a couple of amino acids does not by any stretch uh, give you life. So what were some of the other problems with well, uh, the Well, one of the basic problems was that the amounts of methane and ammonia that they used uh, in this experiment, they later found out that there was a lot of evidence that these were not either not just the only chemicals that existed early on, or they may not have been around at all. In other words, choosing these chemicals was a random thing. They guessed, we think these chemicals might have been around in the early Earth, so we'll proceed from there. But the evidence has piled up since then that that probably isn't the case, that there were either a lot more than just these chemicals around, or maybe even these chemicals weren't even around that early on. So there's a lot of, what I'm saying is they were guessing. Yeah, and one of the other problems is that that, uh, methane and ammonia are very toxic. Yes. So any life that would have come from that would have been instantly destroyed anyway. 
uh, with the chemicals in their natural form, yes. Of course, they asserted that certain changes took place in the chemicals to allow life to come about. But as we'll see as we discuss this, the things that they assumed could have happened to these chemicals to make them non-lethal, even that's questionable. Mm. There's a lot of questions with this, really. Okay, and what about the lightning strike, Kirk? Uh, Okay, they tried to um, simulate actual lightning by some feeble electric sparks in an amount that they, again, that they assumed would simulate a lightning strike on the early earth striking these this soup of chemicals there's there's a lot of assumption going on here i remember when i first read this experiment written in its original format they they had attempted this experiment over 900 different times before oh, yeah. they actually came up with a couple of uh, amino acids in the test tube sure right yeah this isn't something they just did it once or twice and it worked this is something they did over and over and over and over again until they felt that they had achieved the ends that they were looking for. Right. So you can't assume that, you know, okay, on the first try they got this. That's not the case at all. But in the real world, if there was a true prebiotic soup in the atmosphere and or the oceans and a lightning strike hit, let's say, a rock, mm-hmm. okay, what would actually happen in the, in the event of this strike as far as formation of chemicals and or amino acids? Well, like I just mentioned, they used a, uh, and I'm using a quote from one of the reviews of their experiment, they used a feeble electric spark to simulate lightning. But as we all know, lightning in real life, anything that lightning strikes is instantly vaporized. Mm. So really, they were fooling around with this um, to the extent that they were like, okay, if a real lightning bolt would vaporize something, then let's change it a little bit and use a feeble electric bolt and see if that works. Right. So really, there was a lot of fudging going on here. Yeah, and and one of the other commentaries that I love is that uh, it was pointed out to them that any life that arose spontaneously from this primeval soup would be like trying to revive the dead. Sure. I mean, after all, the dead is already dead, and they have all the organic building blocks right there. One of the examples that I love to use is if, if you take 10 frogs and put them in a wearing blender, okay, <laughs> and blenderize them, you've got all of Frog the... Frog soup. All the necessary <laughs> ingredients. You know, you got the eyeballs, you got the brain, you got the skin, you it's got the heart. It's all in there. You got it all. Right. And if you let it sit there for billions and billions of years, what would you have at the end of it all? Dust. Yeah. A stinky... Or a mess. Stinky <laughs> mess at first, but then dust. Well, another scientist later on pointed out the fact that he said, okay, even if you... If we, again, assume that all the right elements were there to create life. You're really saying nothing more than the fact of if you have a dead body, all the elements for life are there too. There's only one thing missing, the life. Where do you get the life from to animate those you know, those chemicals and whatever? And that's what they can't explain. Mm. If you ask, you know, a scientist that believes in this prebiotic soup that, you know, where did the life come from that that brought all this stuff together, they have no answer for that part. Mm. And it was also pointed out by uh, a British mathematician and scientist, Frederick Hoyle, uh, who said that the likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter, let's say the soup, mm-hmm. would be 1 times 10 to the 40th. That's, that's the number 10 with 40 zeros after it's, it. It's actually 40,000 zeros. Oh, I'm sorry. It's 40,000. 40,000 zeros. Can you picture how long a number that is? Yeah, but even 10 to the 40 would be an astronomical. It is literally impossible, yeah. yes. 
So and we also uh, can relate this to what we were talking about last week about spontaneous generation. Mm-hmm. What they're basically saying here is that they're giving you a fancy explanation for how they believe non-living chemicals became a living cell, which is spontaneous generation, mm-hmm. which has been definitively proven does not happen in nature. Right. There is... Louis Pasteur and a number of other famous scientists in the 1800s definitively proved that spontaneous generation is impossible. It doesn't happen. Mm. And we also have the scientific law that we call the law of biogenesis, which in everyday language means like begets like. In other words, if you have a living creature, a living creature has to produce it. So when you come back to these experiments where you say, okay, this is the first living creature, but it came from non-living chemicals. That's a contradiction in the scientific laws that we know. And, and the problem that we have is that DNA is so complex. And, of course, like begets like. It's because you have to have complementary strands of DNA from the male and the female. Sure. In order to produce life after its own kind. Right. And this in no way showed or presupposed that DNA was ever created in this fashion. Getting together a couple of amino acids is a far cry from putting together uh, the millions of base pairs that are necessary to encode the genetic information of a living being. Oh, yeah. And this is nothing like the old Frankenstein movies where, you know, the lightning bolt hits the monster and he gets up off the table and walks away. It's Mm. nothing like that. Although they give you the impression, basically, oh, that's what we've proven happened. Well, it seems to me that everything that we see in the public media, whether it's a, a broadcast on, on nature or you know, National Geographic or uh, uh, a spot on the news, they talk about uh, the missing link and animal evolution and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hardly anything is talked about with respect to the evolution of plant life or flowers. No. What do you make of that? Well, did you ever see a nature show where they uh, talked about, you know, plants and flowers and explained where did the first plant or the first flower come from? Well, isn't there any... How did a one-cell living creature somehow become a plant somewhere along the way? Don't know, but... And they have no idea. They don't even have a theory as to how that happened. <laughs> okay, and of course the fossil record doesn't support any of that anyway. No, any fossils that we have of, of plants and vegetable matter, it's fully formed it looks like they do today Mm. there's no pre-plant type thing and you know the other the other major problem that evolutionists have never really adequately explained is sexual reproduction uh whether that's a tricky one whether it's plant or a flower you know with Mm -hmm. the pistols and the stamen and the pollens and And the bees to bring the pollen back and forth or an animal okay because you'd have to have the male and the female animal evolve simultaneously and then somehow their their um, germ cells would have to break down the DNA into a single strand that would represent the male and then the female, and then the two would have to get together to produce the living offspring. So that, that was one of the logical questions that I had when I first started looking into the answers to these type of questions, is even as a non-Christian and not knowing anything about science, mm. you know, I would often think, okay, you need a male and a female to reproduce a human being. How did both a male and a female somehow evolve at the same time in conjunction with each other so that when they came together, they could create something? How did did that work? It doesn't doesn't make any sense that it would happen that way. Well, one of the concluding remarks that I want to share with the listening audience with respect to plants and flowering plants is actually a quote from Charles Darwin himself. 
And this was in a personal letter that he had written in 1879, and he said this, The rapid development, as far as we can judge, of all the higher plants within the recent geological times is an abominable mystery Mm -hmm. and still remains. Because there's no fossil evidence that would suggest that there was evolution of simple plants into the uh, major plant life uh, categories. Since he said that in 1879, we are no further along in understanding how they came about than they were back then. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about homology, Kirk. Okay. Tell me what homology means and how it relates to the uh, argument, either from a creationist perspective or even an evolutionary perspective. Well, to break it down really basically, all homology really means is biological similarities in higher animals. For instance, um, human beings have a hand. Okay, a chimpanzee has a hand. When a scientist looks at those two creatures, he says, okay, these structures are very similar to each other. There must be a com. he assumes, there must be a common form from which both the chimpanzee hand and the human hand evolved from. So homology would indicate a common evolutionary origin. Yes. Okay. Well. Now this again is an assumption. Okay. It's when you try to prove this scientifically, it gets much more difficult. It, it's a great sounding theory, but proving it is something else. Okay. And let, let's talk a little bit about uh, comparative anatomy and Linnaeus and how he classified uh, plants and animals and what his, um, his stance was on this. Okay. We're talking about uh, a Swedish naturalist. His name was, I hope I pronounced this right. Carolus Linnaeus, Mm -hmm. who lived in the 1700s. He was a a naturalist and a physician who basically founded the modern system of classifying plants and animals. Yeah, and and as far as uh, species and phyla and so forth. When you had to learn all those complicated Latin names for animals and plants in school, this is the guy that came up with that system. So there's probably a lot of high school students out there that hate this guy. Okay, so what was his take on this? He had a little bit of a different slant on this homology thing. Instead of common origin, he saw it as a common creator. Yes. He, he simply he made no assumptions about what he was looking at. He simply um, looked at the different forms and said, okay, the fact that these forms are similar in these different creatures says to me that there was an intelligence that created both of them. And since the basic design was a good design, he used it for more than one creature. That's very interesting. Whereas an evolutionist would look at it and say, okay, there must be a common ancestor that both these forms evolved from. It's all in how you look at it. Yeah, you're right. If if you're a creationist, you see it as a common uh, creator. And if you're an evolutionist, you look at it as a uh, common origin. Right. In the evolutionary tree of life. But again, trying to prove this scientifically is a whole other ballgame. And they, they can't say that they have proven that because one animal looks similar to another, that one evolved from the other. There's no, for instance, there's no uh, fossil in the fossil record showing something halfway between one species of animal and another so that looks similar to both. So we could say, okay, this is the missing link between the two. So far, they have not found anything like that. They've found things a few times that they thought were something like that, but further scientific investigation showed that it wasn't. 
Yeah, and and I love the the analogy that's used here too, as far as the uh, the bone structure in the bat wing, the bat mm-hmm. wing, right, has the same basic bone structure as our hand and our arm. It does, and clearly and scientists have noticed that. Clearly, it's it's two different creatures and two different functions, but the uh, the structure was a useful one, and it was utilized to get totally different results, even right. though they look very similar. So you can't really make an argument of uh, homology there. You might say, if you're trying to use a similar example, you would say from a human point of view, the fact that most, uh, I can't say all, but most of our automobiles basically look the same. They have four wheels, and they're basically the same shape. Why? Are they all evolved from one? Did one evolve from the other? No, it was because the basic design works. So all cars since the Model T Fords have been built to that basic design because that's the best design. Yeah, that's that's a very good analogy. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Hi, I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about Kirk's book, uh, What is Truth? We're talking about uh, the scientific evidence uh, that points to either creation or evolution. Mm-hmm. or the lack of science thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to be talking about some of the pitfalls that the um, evolutionists are having a hard time explaining with respect to the scientific information that's available today. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about punctuated equilibrium. Mm-hmm. This is a good one. Yeah, uh, Many of our listeners may be familiar with a famous scientist who just passed away a couple of years ago. His name was Stephen Jay Gould. He was a prominent evolutionist and wrote many articles for popular magazines and was interviewed on television quite a lot. He was a major spokesperson for Darwinian evolution. Uh, A few years back, uh, he and a number of other scientists realized that, you know, the fossil record that we, as we have it now, really is not proving what we want it to show. It's not showing a bunch of transitional forms between one species and another to show that evolution happened. Now, how do we explain this to the common person? So Mr. Gould came up with the idea that, okay, if we can't find a lot of transitional creatures in the fossil record, maybe it's because these changes didn't take place over a long period of time. Maybe they happened bang overnight. And if we don't have that particular fossil where it happened overnight, that explains why it's not in the fossil record. All right. So basically the fossil record was reflecting stasis or lack of change. Yes. And there were no intermediate forms. So this was an attempt to explain away. Explain that away. What the fossil record was actually showing and stating that, well, it just happened way overnight. After, after more than 150 years since Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, we have no transitional fossils he assumed that we were going to find a lot of these in in the next hundred or two years but that hasn't come about so now scientists are trying to backtrack a little bit and they're trying to come up with with explanations to fit the evolutionary model that explain why we're not finding these transitional models and this is one that mr gould came up with right and i'd like to remind our listening audience that if you missed the show um it was actually the second interview with Kirk Hastings. We talked about all of the uh, fossil uh, record uh, evidences and, and the uh, ape-man um, um, things like Lucy and, uh-huh. and, and so forth. So if you missed that show, you might want to go into the, the podcasts and get them either from evidenceforfaith.com or 
uh, iTunes. The human evolutionary tree mm. is what we call it. Now, the, the, one, the one thing that I find uh, rather curious uh, is that of Ernst Haeckel. And he has the famous drawings of the Haeckel embryos that show a, a parallel of, and it doesn't matter if you're a fish or a reptile or a turtle or a rabbit or a human being, if you look at the various stages of the embryonic development of any of those creatures, there is a parallel similarity of all of those creatures in utero before they're born as they're evolving in the embryo so that they look practically the same at the very beginning and as they begin to differentiate, they become the actual creature that they're supposed to be. Okay, the scientific terminology for this is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That's a, a term that I learned in, t- in 10th grade biology class in 1970, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> My biology teacher grilled us on that until we could say it, and they were yep. pretty big words for, for a 15-year-old kid. But uh, basically, the ontogeny is the embryo, and its embryonic development basically parallels and recapitulates whatever phylum that that creature was going to belong to. So this was uh, the evolution or the recapitulation theory that Ernst Haeckel had uh, promoted with his first drawings. Gosh, my goodness, it's... um, In 1874, he first claimed this. Yes. And his his basic claim was that if you look at the embryos of almost any uh, higher creature, that you can see, like you said, you can see similarities in the very early embryo. And his contention was that are the embryos of these creatures are actually recreating the evolutionary history of how living creatures evolved. And then finally the embryo becomes whatever it's supposed to become. And he made a series of famous drawings mm-hmm. where he showed the embryos of different creatures in the very early stages, and the drawings clearly showed how very similar those early embryos were to each other. But However, there was, but there was a problem. There's only one problem with this. And what was that problem? He fudged the drawings. Now, fast forward to the 1990s. Another scientist, uh, I believe, yes, Mike, Michael Richardson, Michael Richardson, an embryologist at St. George's Hospital Medical School in London, decided that he was going to recreate this experiment but instead of drawings he was going to actually get the embryos of a bunch of different creatures and put them alongside each other to recreate this drawing in real life but he did it with photography yes that's yeah that's what i mean he he photographed these embryos at the same stage uh that the drawing was supposedly showing them at and what he found was that those embryos looked totally different than Haeckel's drawings did. In other words, Haeckel fudged the drawings to make them look more like one another to buttress the theory of evolution. And this was uh, revealed in 1997 and uh, published um, and um, was reinforced by a letter in Science Magazine by Richardson Richardson himself. Mm -hmm. And he said this about Haeckel's drawings. The drawings of 1874 are substantially fabricated. In support of this view, I note that the oldest fish image is made up of bits and pieces from different animals, some of them mythical. Mm -hmm. It is not unreasonable to characterize this as faking. 
Sadly, it is the discredited 1874 drawings that are used in so many British and American biology textbooks today. They're still being used in some textbooks today, even though they've been proven to be falsifications. Now, we should also point out that this uh, Mr. Richardson is also not, does not characterize himself as a Christian or a creationist. He is simply a scientist who wanted to investigate this, and he's being honest about what he came up with. You know, it's interesting because one of the uh, clear tenets of scientific investigation is reproducibility. Yep. Okay. If you can reproduce the experiment over and over again and get the same result, then it has right. to be true. Right. So he did this by photography so that there was no fudging at all. Right. And uh, clearly Haeckel's uh, stuff should be thrown out of all publications. Now, I don't know for sure, but I would assume that when Mr. Richardson started to, to do this, when he started photographing these embryos, he was expecting to come up with something pretty close to Haeckel's drawings, and he was probably pretty shocked when he found out how different it was. Mm. Well, he made a strong rebuttal, certainly in his uh, publications. Sure, but you don't hear that very often about how he disproved this. Let's talk about natural selection, evolution, and um, breeding experiments and how you can look at breeding experiments to support either the theory of creationism or evolution. Okay. So what do you think? What's your, what's your take on this? Give us an example this, of... This is one of those things when you hear about it, you tend to slap your head and say, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, there are many scientists who insist that um, the breeding experiments that they do where they come up with different, like, for instance, a new breed of dog or a new breed of plant. There's a lot of um, this artificial breeding going on today as far as plant life is concerned because they're coming up with things like seedless watermelons, which are really fun to eat because you don't have to spit the seeds out. Um, they come up with other vegetables that grow like three times bigger than they normally would. Mm -hmm. You know, just by messing around with the genetics of these, these things, they can make them more useful. And a lot of scientists will point to this stuff going on and say, look, this proves evolution because what we're doing is we're helping these things to evolve into other forms, which is what we say happened in the primordial earth, that things changed into different creatures and plants and whatever in the same way that we're doing now. There's only one problem with this. When you think about it, these things are not occurring in nature. It's an intelligent scientist or breeder who is overseeing this procedure in order to change these things into another form. So now the creationists are coming forward and saying, look, this proves that there was an intelligent creator behind the living creatures that we see that manipulated them the same way that you're manipulating them with your intelligence. So what you're saying then is that there's an intelligent designer behind all of these experiments that then That's create... Right. Really these things are not happening naturally. Nature isn't doing this. There's intelligent men that are causing these things to come about. And this is in contradistinction to um, ra uh, random chance happenings over time. Yes, which is the definition of evolution. Okay. This is the, this is not random at all. This is intelligently directed. So change. Just, right. So just if I can sum this up from an evolutionary perspective, if you're a staunch evolutionist, you believe that uh, the idea of natural selection or descent through modification. Right. Um, 
the vehicle by which this occurs is random genetic mutations over a long period of time, which results in a significant biological change that progresses from a more simple form to a more complex form, or let's say a more hardy form, or right. a bigger form. Or, or a form more able to survive than the previous one. Okay, good. So Survival of the fittest. So this this whole thing then is being flipped on its side and argued by the creationists then that there's an intelligent designer behind it and that it can't be by chance random mutation and eons of time. Yes, because these things, uh, such as a seedless watermelon, these things are not happening naturally in nature. It's only because we have intelligent people who are manipulating the watermelon that's bringing these, this result about. And, and you know what the problem is with the seedless watermelon? What's that? You can't take one of the seeds out and grow it. No, that's part that's of the problem. True. They can't reproduce themselves. They, they've modified the um, uh, the cells that would be responsible for the next generation. If a seedless watermelon did evolve in nature, it would die out. That's correct. Eventually, it, its mutation and its germ cells are gone because of the mutation, and that leaves it genetically at a dead end. Right. It can't reproduce itself. But what about all the dog breeds, dog breeder experiments, and all that stuff? Well, again, those are intelligently directed by dog breeders who are bringing these developments about. They're not happening naturally. Okay, and the bottom line is that they're still dogs. They can still yes. interbreed. Yes, they're still dogs. They so have not managed to change a dog into a cat yet. So if I took, if I took let's say, 50 different breeds of dog, Kirk, and got a 50-acre compound that was fenced in, and I took these 50 beautiful animals, each of their own breed, each of their own intelligence, you know, the hunting dogs, the, the herding dogs, the, the show dogs, the, mm -hmm. the poodles, the cuddly dogs, the little chihuahuas, those little yappers, mm -hmm. the Great Danes, St. Bernards, and put them in a compound that was fenced in mm -hmm. and fed them and let them go 10 generations. What would I have at the end of the 10 generations of reproduction? What do you think? That's a good question. Uh, it brings an interesting picture to mind if a chihuahua and a great dane would try to get together oh that's a bad visual let's <laughs> let's move on uh, the point is is that if you take all of those animals in the wild and let them do their thing after 10 generations you'd have a whole bunch of mutts right but, but they'd would, still be dogs you'd still have the same genetic information i don't care if it's sure. the, the, the the wither height of of a, a great dane you know which is about three feet or so right uh, a newfoundland which is a big furry beast uh, all of that same genetic information is still in the gene pool within that compound. That's right. And over hundreds of years, you could actually selectively breed out all of those um, animals again into their various breeds. Right. Because the genetic information, the is, information still in is still there. The information is still there. Okay. So here's the point. If left unto, unto random chance and time, you have all of those selective breeds that then devolve into a mutt. Right. But then you have to have an, an intense... Uh, application of all the scientific breeding processes to restore that br those breeds back to, to their original. To get a Great Dane back out of a mutt would be really difficult. It, it might take you could do it. it. Might take fifty to a hundred years of successive breeding to to get those various animals back to where you had them. Whereas in ten generations, or let's say ten years or less, you'd have a whole big compound of mutts. Right. So the point. But is, the mutts are all still dogs. They haven't changed into another type of animal. Right. They're not bears and they're not uh, raccoons and, and right. so forth. Okay. So if we can't artificially create this in a laboratory under all absolutely perfect conditions and with intelligent direction, what makes anybody think that nature totally randomly with no intelligent direction whatsoever could do it? It's mm. a good point. Yep. Very good point.
Um, but anyway, let's let's talk about the uh, the famous peppered moth um, example that's used in natural selection and evolution. Mm-hmm. That's that's this one is that another thing you might still see in a modern textbook. There's only one problem with it. It's all fake. Well, explain that. Well, uh, for years, these pictures appeared in biology textbooks of the peppered moth used as a proof of evolution because uh, the scientists were saying that this particular kind of moth um, is invisible to predators when it rests on light-colored tree trunks because it's light-colored. It has kind of a camouflage effect, which helps it to survive. Well, they noticed that some of these moths that got into an environment with darker trees, that the moths became darker as a result so that they would still blend into the trees. And they said, look, this proves evolution. This moth evolved from a light moth into a dark moth in order to ensure its survival. Yeah, this was a a thing that was noticed back in the late 1800s during the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain. Right. Because the the tree trunks, by and large, were light-colored. The lighter moths were able to light on them, and you couldn't see them because they blended right into the bark. Right. But as the soot and pollution and everything else from the Industrial Revolution took hold, the tree trunks and everything else started to turn dark and black. So the darker moths were selected for... Okay, so there was a little bit of a genetic shift, a population shift, if you will, from the lighter moth to the darker moth. But remember, at the very beginning, all three types of moths were still in existence. They were all genetically coded for. The light moth didn't disappear when the dark one came about. Correct. It was simply the dark ones survived longer because they were on the darker trees and the light moths started to die off quicker, but there were still light moths around. Right. So what, what's the problem with using this as an example of, of evolution or microevolution? Well, for one thing, what we just explained was that no actual change took place here. The original moth had the capacity to be either a light moth or a dark moth. And depending on its surroundings, it adapted to its surroundings. But as soon as those moths would go back to light trees again, they would turn light again. And they were still moths. And they didn't know, change into another species. They're still moths. And the fact of the matter is environmental pressures don't cause an adaptation. The genetic information is already there that allows for that species to promote itself because it has an advantage. Okay? Right. But it's not really evolution per se. There's the no gen- new genetic information being created. It's only certain information that was already there becomes predominant. Correct. In order to help the creature to survive. And one last point that I think we should point out to our listening audience is that um, evolutionists have long held to the thought that mutations over time are what create this shift. Now, with mutations, there's a loss of genetic information. Right. And, I, and I've said many, many times on this show, and I've said it elsewhere, that mutations cause disease, death, deformity. Okay. They cause an imperfect creature is what they do. That is correct. That is not adapted for survival like the original was. Well, why don't we talk talk about the Drosophila experiments, the fruit fruit fly experiments, while we're talking about uh, genetic mutations. Of course, that's one that probably any high school student can relate to because we've all had to play around with these little fruit flies in biology class to see what we could come up with. Well, we can induce genetic mutations whereby they have more legs or more wings. Sure. But they're still fruit flies. Um, and what else? There, there's a problem with that, though. Um, they don't fly as well. 
Sure. And therefore... like I just said, they're not as well adapted to survivability as the original fruit fly that had all its parts. And uh, I'm assuming, because to tell you the truth, I never actually did these experiments in high school. I don't know how I got out of it, but I did. And I didn't dissect any frogs either. (laughs) Okay. But... The fruit flies that have, for instance, that are bred without wings or without a leg or whatever, they die. Right. Because they're not suited for survivability anymore. Correct. That's nature's way of getting rid of imperfect creatures. Mm. They die and they don't reproduce themselves. Right. So mutations never bring new information into the creature. They only destroy existing information. Well, let's be broad about this and say that science has not shown us any evidence so far that any new genetic information is ever created in any of these creatures. That's, to put it politely. Certainly by mutation. Sure. You You, you don't, genetic information that's totally different than what came before doesn't pop into existence overnight and create a new creature. It just doesn't happen. That, uh, That makes a good science fiction story. Uh, but as far as real life, there's no scientific evidence that shows that that has ever happened or ever will happen. Well, l- let's talk about uh, Darwin. Let's go back to Darwin. In 1835, he was on the HMS um, Beagle, and that's Beagle. when he was doing his uh, uh, naturalistic surveys of the Galapagos Islands, and, mm-hmm. and he talked about the Darwin finches, which is also used for an example of natural selection or evolution. Right. Tell me what that finch observation was all about. Well, they noticed that these finches in uh, their natural environment had a beak that was a certain size. And under different conditions, they were coming up with finches that had a longer beak than the usual. And they're like, how did this come about? And they determined that, well, this is evolution taking place that, let me see if I can get this right, the, the seeds that the finches eat um, in a certain type of climate, they become harder, I believe, and they have to have a longer beak During in order drought. to break them, to eat them. Mm-hmm. So when, for instance, there was a bad year uh, weather-wise, whether uh, I, you know they weren't getting enough rain or whatever, yeah. and the seeds were developing a harder shell, they were noticing the finches were ending up with longer beaks so that they could break these shells to still eat the seeds and survive. So they said, okay, this is here's an example of evolution in action. These creatures developed this new trait to enable them to survive, the survival of the fittest. But is it really evolution? Well, I would say no, and a lot of scientists would say no, because number one, the finches with the smaller beaks did not go extinct. As soon as the weather changed back again, their beaks shortened again. They went back to where they were, and it would go back and forth in either direction. And there's still finches. So as we were talking about a week or so ago, when we were talking about the difference between microevolution and macroevolution, this is a great example of microevolution, where you have change within a species based on genetic information that's already there that becomes predominant that makes a change in the animal but doesn't change it into a different animal. Correct. And environmental pressures never, ever cause a change in the genetic mutation or the genetic makeup. No. Prior to that, people thought that 
environmental stresses would actually change the genetic makeup of a creature right and it would then evolve into a new creature right we know that to be completely false but even if something like that did take place the creature that evolved that change would probably die because it would be a less perfect creature and it wouldn't reproduce itself and pass that trait on mm. fascinating stuff to say the least you have been listening to evidence for faith with kirk hastings hi i'm dr mike larrakis Please join us again next week. We're going to continue this dialogue with author Kirk Hastings, author of What is Truth? And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.